Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me today in a conversation with Jake Poor, President and Chief Experience Officer of Integrated Loyalty Systems, a company whose mission is to elevate the human side of healthcare. I wanted to start with you talking a little bit about the story of your dad, because it sounds like that's where your journey in healthcare began. It definitely was a pivotal moment in my career choice to go into healthcare. I got the phone call in Orlando, Florida. I was working at Disney. Dad has had a heart attack. He was on a fishing trip in Michigan. And with the internet the way it was, I immediately went to the internet. Your dad needs a mitral valve surgery. And I went on comparehospital.gov and I looked at the hospital's infection control rate. I looked at its mortality rate. I looked at its clinical outcomes, and I even looked at its patient satisfaction. It's very transparent now in the United States, which we're very behind. And I actually had peace of mind. I said, well, all right. I got on a plane. I flew there. I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I know you just had a heart attack, but he was lucid. He was awake. He looked like something out of Star Trek. He had all these devices on his chest and all these monitors on the wall, blipping and blopping. And I'm not a clinician, so I didn't know what they were doing. I said, Dad, I know you just had a heart attack, but you look scared to death. He goes, all right, nobody knows who I am. They don't know my doggone birthday. They don't know what the heck I'm in here for. I said, what are you talking about? Everybody, oh, here comes another one. Here comes another one. And in walks a nurse. Good evening. My name is Betty. I'm going to be your nurse. Can you tell me your last name? And he says, I can tell you my last name. Can you tell me my last name? And she's like, yes, Mr. Poor, I can tell you last. Can you tell me your date of birth? He goes, 2626. And she, he says, she says, what are you in for? He goes, two to four, armed robbery. What's it to you? And he had a big, great sense of humor. But she left the room and she giggled and she ch- changed her IV, whatever. And uh, he says, see, every one of them, they come in here. I go, dad, it's a national law. It's three safety protocols. They have to ask you those questions. And he said, after a long pause, he goes, oh, well, how come nobody told me that? We." In healthcare, this is the reason I'm on a revolution to change the human side of healthcare, is because it's so inhumane. We've been doing it the same way in the United States for 200 years. I don't know about it in Australia, but we, we have been using the same words, the same processes, the same wards. We still call patients patients instead of guests in our own home. We dehumanize them by taking their clothes and making them wear this, this god-awful Johnny or patient gown. We don't even call them by their name. We give them a clinic ID number and on and on. We, we eat when we tell them to eat. You, 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 know, you go to the bathroom after you hit the call bell. And so all of this is, has been circling in my head. I'm, I'm working at the Disney Institute. I'm selling the blueprints of the Disney science and art to the rest of the world. And 80% of the folks are from healthcare. So I'm getting this passion, yet I'm in front of my dad who's going to go into open heart surgery. And the long story short is... Someone comes in, my dad's having terrible palpitations, terrible breathing problems, and this nurse comes in, and I remember her saying vividly, I said, what's that, as she's hanging an IV? And in my company, we call that caring out loud, telling us what you're doing while you're doing it, not waiting for the family to ask. And she says, oh, this is a little blood thinner to help your dad with the heart palpitations. And I filed that away, thinking nothing of it. As I said, I'm not a clinician. And so the surgeon come, or the doctor comes in and says, good news, the chief of medicine, the chief of surgery is going to do the surgery at 4.30 this morning. This is like 8 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 o'clock in the evening. And I'm like, oh, wow, the chief, that's great. 
the long story short is I go in the waiting room and I've got the newspaper open and I'm reading a story about a previous president, Bill Clinton, having to wait three days to get the blood thinner out of his his system. And and I'm thinking to myself, ah, they probably, ah, they communicated that, right? Well, you know, the long story short is I, you know, I'm in the waiting room, been three hours surgery, nurse comes in, she bows her head. I'm like, oh man, it's not good. She invited me into the other waiting room with the 14 boxes of Kleenex and the tissues. And I go, oh man, this is not good. And she goes, I'm sorry, but you know, your dad didn't make it. He just he just couldn't hold the sutures. He, I'm so sorry. I said, well, what was the cause of death? Well, he just he just bled out. He, for some reason, his you know his veins just couldn't hold the sutures. And I said, well, what about the blood thinner they gave him last night? And she looked at the chart and she looked up at me and she said, blood thinner? What blood thinner? You know, I don't know if you know this statistic, and I'm not I'm proud to reveal it, but a quarter million people died last year in the United States because avoidable medical mistakes. That's equivalent of two 747s colliding every day. If that happened in Qantas or Australia or the United States, in the airlines, we'd shut down the whole airline. Yet, for some reason, it's become acceptable. And my dad was just one of those statistics. And now, isn't it interesting that everybody wants to talk about customer service because I'm the Disney guy, but really what we have to we have to do Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Safety's got to be paramount. And they're juggling. I just look at, uh, Moyes, I look at a lot of these caregivers. And my mom was one. My sister's now a nurse uh, in the operating room. They're juggling so many balls about their head. And we can go to root cause analysis. I've now been doing this exclusively in healthcare for 18 years. But I think we have done ourselves a disservice. Healthcare is about 30 years behind hospitality and business and we can pull a thread and go down the rabbit hole of how many root causes there are, but we've scheduled to the breaking point. We have not thought through the entire patient experience. And I know you want to talk about design and architecture. Even architects look at the physical ambiance and the setting. We're not looking at all four pieces of the total experience, I believe. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm happy to talk to you today. Just to pick up on a couple of things you said there, uh, or at least to interpret a couple of things that you said there, what, what you're suggesting is that it's not going to cost us a fortune to get this right. This requires the small things like calling your dad by his name, the name that he preferred to, to use. It's about making sure that somebody tells somebody else that a blood thinner has been administered and that this operation can't go ahead this evening, et cetera, et cetera. Talk a little bit about that. Give us some more examples of things that you think could be done at relatively low cost that would make such a difference to outcomes? Let's just go through the whole experience. I mean, there's, there's so many pieces, but let's just go the, because uh, we have to, with the healthcare technology revolution, technology is moving seven times faster than, than our human side can catch up. But we were 30 years behind and now technology is moving ahead. So let's just go through the hospital experience in Michigan. The door's open. It's an intensive care unit. Nobody knocks. Nobody waits. It's not a door. It's his door. It's not a room. It's his room. You know, you can take any classroom and, and, and pass out materials. People sit down and you take everybody out of the classroom. You can move all the materials around and people go, hey, I was sitting there. Well, that's my stuff. Well, wait a minute. We were just here for 10 minutes. You're taking ownership over that chair. That's my father's room. Yet nobody knocked on the door. Mr. Poor, Mr. Poor, please call me Eddie, he would say. He's a very gregarious, outgoing guy. That's where I got my genes from. 
Please call me Eddie. Oh, Eddie it is, sir. I'll make sure everybody else knows. Next person walk in, Mr. Poor. It erodes trust. It goes to what Florence Nightingale, the, the mother of modern day nursing in the United States called fear, anxiety, trepidation, and surprise do more harm to the patient than the actual exertion. You don't not leave her number one. You don't call me by the patient by the name they asked you to call them by, leave her number two. You then, you know, dehumanize them, ask their name, date of birth, and don't tell them why, leave her number three. Oh, Mr. Poor, I see you have a gold crucifix on and uh, another necklace. Oh, let me get those in patient belongings. Now, wait a minute. My mom's a nurse. My wife's a nurse. You know, even though she's no longer with it, she told me as a surgical nurse, you can just take these on my body somewhere. I want these necklaces with. Oh, yes. Let me communicate to the next person. Next person walks in. Oh, Mr. Poor. No knock. No eye contact. Hanging IVs. Let me get those gold necklaces for you. We walk down to the surgery center. A nurse anesthetist comes up and says, Mr. Poor, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a nurse anesthetist. Do you know what that is? First of all, my name is Eddie. And yes, I know what a nest is. Hopefully, you're going to put me to sleep, and hopefully, you're going to wake me up. And she goes, oh, I see you've got some gold necklaces on. Let's get those gold necklaces. And he looked at me with that little kid-like, I'm scared to death look. And he basically said, geez, if they can't get the gold necklaces right, what else are they not going to get right? And unfortunately, he foreshadowed the inevitable. We are, as you say, 30 years behind. I, I quite agree with you. We're 30 years behind. Disney, we're 30 years behind supermarkets. We're 30 years behind uh, travel agents. How are we ever going to catch up? Well, the good news in the United States is President Obama took care of that. He created a 26-question questionnaire. Uh, 60%, 50 to 60% of the revenue paid to hospitals in the United States is socialized medicine, it's Medicaid and Medicare for the elderly and the poor. And that is tied and paid by the U.S. government. So uh, Obamacare was invented, and part of that accountability that even a lot of employees don't know or, or patients don't know is tied to their their survey, 26-question survey. And the good news is the questions are frequency questions. How often did your doctor treat you with dignity and respect? Never is the lowest. Sometimes is the middle, and always is the highest. And out of the questions, if let's just say the questions are zero to ten. And if you get eight out of 10 on any of those questions, you get a zero. Anything at eight or below, you get a zero. You only get credit for nines and tens. So my phone started to ring because the good news is everyone wanted to get their quiet at night scores up. They wanted to get their patient bedside manner stuff scores up. But that's a, a stick or a carrot, if you will. And it's really tied to financial reimbursement, which people only worry about until the end of the year. What's going to catch them up? It's the right thing to do. I've been preaching this before Obamacare for the longest time. It's, it's the golden rule on steroids, right? Do unto others as you want done unto yourself. If you are in that bed, architect, patient, a family member, what would you want, right? I mean, so let's take it. I always like to do this. You know, everybody asks me if Disney ran your hospital. What if hospitals ran Disney? Now think about that for a moment. When you go into a Disney Hotel, let's say it was run by a hospital that has been doing it the same way for 200 years. They wouldn't knock when they entered your hotel room. They'd just start coming in and start cleaning your room while you and your wife are laying in bed. Oh, sorry, you got to clean the room, your last room on my shift. Sounds ridiculous, right? But why have we made it acceptable in healthcare? There are no break rooms, right? You wonder why suicide rate amongst physicians and nurses at all time high around the world it's all that stress taking a toll, and we keep cutting and cutting and cutting to the bone, right? Nobody's answering the call bells. What if 
hospitals ran Disney, right? Think about that. We wouldn't answer the phone. It would just ring and ring and ring. Or we just put you on hold for two hours like we do in our call centers. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's how ridiculous I see it. And that's why I committed my the rest of my life to help fix it because it's so broken. The good news is I think there's a hunger. I think people have always said the patient is first, the patient's in the center of everything we do, but now they really are putting their money where their mouth is. I think that's my summary to that piece. Right. So, you know, dig down this a little bit more. What we don't want is a McDonald's have a nice day kind of attitude because it's not genuine. It's very false. It's very, I have to do this because if I don't say this, I won't get the tick in the box, et cetera, et cetera. How do we win the hearts of doctors and hospitals rather than just the minds? Well, I think it's, you're talking about two different audiences. So physicians, physician assistants, nurses, they, they of course need data. You sent me a great article about just changing the waiting room chairs or the, or the patient uh, exam room chairs to be larger or smaller or more comfortable or uncomfortable. It doesn't, you didn't need to do a research study on it. I could have told you that, right? Your mom could have told you that, you know, if you give me a big, fat, comfortable office chair and the doctor sits on a stool, I'm going to feel a little important. If the chair elevation is the doctor literally is sitting lower than me, he or she is looking up to me, putting me on the pedestal. I'm going to feel important. Put the stethoscope around their neck. You put a white coat on them. They look professional. They talk in a language I can understand. Uh, I think we, we really have to reverse engineer this through the patient's eyes. We literally have to ask them, what did you hear? What did you like? What did you not like? What's working, Right. And so, and we, we test this hypothesis. There's a doctor in San Diego, California, for instance, who says, stop apologizing for the wait. Because when you apologize for waiting, they want to know why. And now you're into a three-minute conversation times 48 patients. You're here till 10 o'clock at night. He says, thank you for waiting. Your time is very valuable for us. And I appreciate, and I'm going to give you all the time you need to, uh, but by thanking the patient, the conversation's over. Now that's, that's art and science. And Why are we not sharing these best practices? It's only until now that they're looking outside of their own box to get that science and art. Now, to your point of you can't McDonald's it or or have the invisible pencil in your teeth like the old airlines, you know, where they you have a nice day and you know there's no Duchesne smile, says the research. There's no crow's feet. There's no sincerity and authenticity. Here's what I do know about healthcare. It's really hard to fake it. There's so much pain. There's so much anxiety. We don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't know how long it's going to talk. And I'm just talking about the nurses. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what's wrong with you. There's a lot of empathy and sincerity, but they don't know how to hardwire it. And I think by bringing the research together, not just the science of that wait time management or the science of medicine, but the art of things that we tried and failed, but the things that we tried and worked. And sometimes, quite frankly, it's outside our industry. And yes, sometimes even in a drive through restaurant, you can learn some things. Uh, I brought a lot of it. And I think it's those real life experience, Moyes, that really bring the sincerity and authenticity. Somebody who makes you smile doing a safety spiel on an airline. Wait a minute, we do safety spiels in hospitals all the time. What can we learn from that? Is making a patient smile, lowering their blood pressure? Of course it is. There's a Stop releasing cortisol out of the adrenaline gland, which raises their uh, their all their other vitals. Yes. So why not start looking outside of our industry? And I think now, at least in the United States, well, you know, they have to. 
Do you think that the business of healthcare, and it's unfortunate to call it that, but it is that, the business of healthcare is intruding on the things that allow healthcare professionals to be human. So, you know, you've got these list of things that you've got to do, checks and balances, tick these boxes, do these tests, fill in these forms to get paid, et cetera, et cetera. And that begins to encroach. And eventually you can imagine somebody becoming a bureaucrat, not becoming an artist, becoming a bureaucrat and behaving like you're in a tax office, getting filling in your tax return, not sitting there, the doctor telling them, you know, you've got pain in your chest. Do you think that's encroaching? And how, how would you tackle that? Let's start with before Obamacare, which mandated electronic medical records, which means that you have to type in 30 minutes worth of work after every patient, which is mind boggling when you think about seeing 30 to 40 patients a day. And let's go before the 80s where we was fee for service. So the more I build, the more exams I did, and the more tests, I, the more money I made. So that's, I don't know about Australia. I don't know about your medicine there, but let's say, let's get to the point where what's the root cause today? In the United States today, and I've only been doing this 18 years, and I've worked about a thousand different of the 4,500 hospitals. I've worked in about a thousand of them. Almost all of them, physicians are paid on relative value units, what we call RVUs. In other words, the more patients you see, the sicker they are, the more money you make per hour, okay? That's a disincentive to be nice, okay? Now, you add to that the electronic health record, the no having no scribe, running, literally, I've had physicians multiple times say, I, I'm not a physician anymore. I'm a gerbil on a wheel running from exam room to exam room, literally running, and we did research in the United States in 1984, 2004, the average physician interrupts a patient every 18 seconds. Why? Are they not nice people? Do they not like to listen? No, I know a lot of them. They do that for efficiency. All right, you having trouble sleeping? All right, I'll get you a sleeping pill. Oh, you're having trouble in bed? Let me give you a little blue pill. Oh, you're having trouble? Well, you're, you're down all the time? Let me give you an upper. We, we missed the whole diagnosis, which is, decompre- or which is depression, because we're fighting the symptoms and we built processes that incentivize that. So how do we work with that? The good news is, in the United States at least, with the perceived value of the experience being measured on a frequency survey, which I'm not crazy about, I'm sure they're not either, that patient's perception is reality, and it's tied to 3% of the financial reimbursement the hospital gets. 3% is millions of dollars, right? So there's, there's got to be a call to action. We've got to figure out, because I've been doing this for a long time, and there was no call to action. Only in the last eight years, they're like, uh, oh, should we really do this? Should we really tie this to to financial reimbursement, to patients, uh, or the annual performance review, or how we pay docs? Yes. And the winners are the ones who are leading the way. You know, there's always the leaders and the laggers and the ones in the middle wondering where everybody else is going, right? So I think we can get there. I think The faith-based organizations are probably leading the way first because when you say your mission is to extend the healing ministry of Christ, well, you got a Bible to back you up, right? That's a little easier because your mission is literally in work clothes. And I find working with faith-based organizations, that's a, a, a less of a leap. Academic medicine, small rural hospitals, safety net little places that don't have a lot of money to spend on this, a little harder to leap. But you've got to use the same blueprint culturally and and um, hiring selection, onboarding, and accountability got to come together cohesively 
uh, intertwined or otherwise this too will pass. It'll be another program of the year, month or, or day. Harold Shipman was the, the most prolific mass murderer in the United Kingdom. He was a family physician, he was a family doctor. And the story goes that he was caught because the taxi driver noticed that he was taking people to Dr. Shipman's clinic. And remarkably few of them were actually making it out of there. So he was actually killing people in the shop, as it were, injecting them with uh, morphine and all the rest of it. The story goes that he, the taxi driver said to this woman, you know, are you serious? You want to go to Shipman's place? You know, he's, you, you think you're going to make it out of there? And the story goes that she stopped using the taxi driver because Harold Shipman was an extraordinarily nice man. And so is there a danger? And, I, you know, I'm just kind of using a bit of hyperbole there. Is there a danger that when we turn this into a very nice experience, that there's a danger we're going to just slip into bad medicine? It's, it's a really great point. And there's a lot of uh, nurses and physicians on the Internet who hate the uh, patient satisfaction survey and their, you know, their, their hyperbole is we just have to pull a string in our neck to teach to a test. And that's the worst thing that can happen. But in absence of no accountability and no financial, you know, we had a phrase in business school that I love, what gets measured gets done. What gets measured and incentivized or penalized usually gets done really well. So there's got to be a call to action of some sort, whether it's your faith, or the reason you got into medicine, or is there a business behind this? You've got to make sure that there's got to be the right win, what's in it for us. So for scientists is, will their length of stay be shortened? And everybody wins, right? We can see more patients, we can churn and burn more rooms, we can birth more babies, more surgeries. Everybody wins, shorter length of stay, less infection control, patient goes home earlier, they love being in their own bed, they don't want to sleep in a hospital with noise, as physicians want to do more surgeries, right? The ER is not holding patients for eight to 16 hours. They get them upstairs, upstairs, get them out. It's a win, win, win. If I sit with the patient, and I know it's a trick. If I sit with the patient, I know the patient's blood pressure drops five points, right? Oh, that's good. Now I'm not getting a false positive on a blood pressure cuff. I also know that their veins relax and it's easier to hit the vein if I'm going to puncture the vein and draw blood or set an IV. These are important things. The opposite is true too. If you're scared to death, you tense up, the vein contracts, it's harder to hit that vein, three sticks, and you're out of here. I kick you out. Give me somebody who knows what they're doing. So you've got to make sure you tie to the phlebotomist, the surgeon. What is it? What's in it for them too? And I think we're so focused sometimes on teaching the impact and consequences on the employee. Now, as far as sincerity and authenticity goes, I think you have to tie to what's in it for them to make sure those connections happen. And a lot of times, you know, as a facilitator or a coach, a physician coach, you, you've got to change it up. Who, who's, who's your husband? Who's your wife? Who's your mom? Put them in that seat just for a minute. Would you decorate the office differently? Would you change your furniture? Would you dress differently? Would you wear your name tag over your heart and not maybe intentionally have it flipped over or leave it on your coat and your chair? So all of those things matter. Uh, we had a phrase at Disney, everything speaks, Right. Everything about your organization speaks, your waiting area, your name tags, your parking lot, your wheelchairs or lack thereof, your signage, your wayfinding, your acronym language. It all matters. The question is, what is it saying as an organization? If you were to string it together like a song at the end of this, what song would they be whistling when they leave there? Are they just going, ah, 
when they leave, you know? We know that small elements of the patient experience are predictive of big outcomes, including the worst possible outcomes, as was the case in Jake's family. What Jake Poor's ideas offer is nothing less than a vast improvement in healthcare at hardly any additional cost. It is a call to action for everyone involved in the health sector. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.